Morning, church. So good to be back with you. I told the first service that when I mean, they were the real faithful people getting out here that early, it was so cold. I'm not saying that says anything about you, but it, you know, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful holiday. I'm excited about Monterey and the process that you are engaged in. I uh, hear that things are going really well in the search process, and there's a update about that a little bit later on. But know that you are covered in prayer, and we are excited for where God is taking this church, and so excited to see uh, where you all end up in just a few weeks or months. I want to introduce you this morning to an individual. His name is Winfred Gonzalez. Winfred's an interesting guy. He spent just over 35 years of his life as an illegal immigrant. He'd wake up every morning and he'd cross the border from Mexico into the United States and looking for work. Many of those days he found work and some days he didn't. Whatever the case may be, he, he always lived his life looking over his shoulder, wondering if he would get caught and several times he did. That Border Patrol picked him up three or four times in that time span. And each time they picked him up, they arrested him, they put him in the bus, and they brought him back to his side of the line. And then oftentimes the next morning he got up and he did the same thing again. After many years of that process, Winford decided one day he mustered up the courage. He walked into the office of an immigration lawyer in Texas and he found out some startling news. They began to go through some paperwork that he had brought with him, and he found out that his father had been born in Texas. And not only had he been born in Texas, he worked for a time in Texas. And when all the dust had settled, whenever they ironed everything out, he realized that he, in fact, was a U.S. citizen and didn't even know it. All those years, he had the paperwork that he needed. He had his father's birth certificate. He had the work permits. And in spite of all of that, he had lived all of those years covered in guilt and motivated by fear. I'm amazed, church, at the number of God's children, those who have been bought with the blood of Jesus. Those who in every sense of this analogy have the citizenship papers in hand. I'm amazed at the number of God's children trying to sneak into God's family. Working with all of our might to dig the tunnel or to climb the fence. Do enough good things say enough right things, spend enough time in the right building, when all the while, maybe we've been completely unaware of the fact that God has opened wide the front doors of the kingdom. And if you didn't know that this morning, you need to hear that. But I want you to also understand that we are not the first generations of God's people to struggle with understanding that very important reality. Do you remember the Galatians? 
I want you to listen to what Paul wrote to the Galatians many years ago when they were struggling with something just like this. Paul writes, we are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but rather by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ the one who encourages sin? <laughs> Absolutely not. But if I build up again those things that I once destroyed, I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. For through the law, I die to the law so that I may live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but rather Christ who lives in me. So the life that I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God. He's the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside God's grace because if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The title of uh, this week's sermon is Living by Faith, and I'm confident that's probably not the first sermon you've heard with a title like that. Most of us in this room would probably agree that we are saved by faith. This is a, a common motto, even especially in our post-Protestant Reformation identity. People like Martin Luther and John Calvin traveled the European countryside, and they told anyone who would listen, we are saved by grace through faith. And many of us have been brought up in communities where we've heard that over and over and over again. We believe that. We are saved by faith. But I do have a follow-up question with that. Whose faith are we talking about exactly? That's actually a pretty important question. I'll be honest with you. I think that there is a certain understanding of this that's really problematic for the Christian faith. Is Paul saying here in Galatians that it is our faith in Jesus that brings about our salvation? Or is he saying something else? I'll be honest with you, there is a certain reading of this text that requires and demands that Christians keep digging under that fence, trying to find our way in. That most of our modern English translations of this passage tell us pretty plainly, and this is one of them, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but instead by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what most of our modern English translations say. That's what the New, New International Version says. That's what the Revised Standard Version says. That's what the New Revised Standard Version says. But that's not what all of them say. What does that translation imply? We may not be justified by observing the law, but if we have faith in Jesus, well, that'll do it. Do you notice something here? 
Once again, it's, it's just like the old system. Salvation, justification, reconciliation to God, all of these things, they are contingent upon us. What we do, what we believe, our faith saves us. Church, I think we're missing the mark a little bit. In fact, this is one of the places where I think actually the King James Version gets it correct. And some of these others miss the mark. In fact, the King James Version is more closely related to the earliest translations of this text. For some reason, around the beginning of the 20th century, English translators began to translate this differently than they ever had before. And they changed one little word, and that one little word has so much significance in the context of what this text actually means. So now, if you look in the more recent translations that have come out, Common English Bible, the New English Translation of the Bible, the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition, which just came out a few months ago. All of these have changed. and They've gone back to the earlier way to translate this passage. And even those that haven't changed as they've renewed the NIV and renewed the NRSV, many of them have a little note in the margin, a footnote that you can follow over, and it says something like, you know, there's another way to translate this verse. I think a more accurate way to read this is actually the way that I read it to you earlier in this sermon. We are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but rather, and listen, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified again by the faithfulness of Christ, not by the works of the law. Do you see the difference? One little word, in or of, <laughs> that makes all the difference in the world. Is it our faith in Jesus that saves us, or rather, is it the faith of Jesus Christ that saves us? I hate it when preachers start using Greek in their sermons, so I won't do that. But I will use a little English grammar this morning. Some of the English teachers in here this morning, and surely in the audience's size, there are people in here that are English teachers. And they will tell you that the most natural translation or understanding of the genitive case is that of possession. So rewind back into your life and you're sitting in high school English class. Remember all those conversations about grammar. And remember the genitive case. The genitive case implies possession. This is Wes's shirt. This music stand belongs to Monterey Church of Christ. And so when you see something in the genitive case, in Greek or in English, the person or thing that's immediately next to that is the one that possesses this thing in the genitive case. And when you know it, here in this text, you have faith. And right next to the word faith in the genitive case is Jesus. What we're talking about is the faith of Jesus. It's not our faith. It's Jesus' faith. Not only are we talking about grammar, I want you to think contextually for a moment. The reading I'm suggesting makes much more sense with what Paul is saying here. 
In fact, Paul's main point throughout this letter to the Galatians and his main point with the paragraph that we're focusing upon this morning is that it's not about what we do, it's about what God does. And he is hitting that point again and again and again, over and over and over. Salvation comes through the activity of God, not through the activity of human beings. Now, at this point, some of you may have some questions. You may be thinking to yourself, well, if it doesn't matter what we do or what we believe or anything else, then, then everybody's going to be saved. That guy out there is justifying some sort of universalist position. Well, that's not exactly what I'm saying here. This is actually a theme that Paul comes back to over and over in his writings. Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, Philippians. Over and over he talks about the gospel message, salvation, how it comes into the world. I want you to listen very quickly to the way that he writes about this to the Romans, just for a moment, again from the King James Version. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight. In other words, if we're just being engaged in the law, there's no way we can make this thing work. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now listen to this sentence. Even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all of them that believe. Paul says here, and he says elsewhere throughout his writings, the righteousness of God, which comes only by the faithfulness of of Jesus. And what does that faithfulness look like? That means Jesus' faith when he decided to die. Jesus' faith in making God's promise a reality. That faithfulness of Jesus is what saves us. So the righteousness of God coming through that faith is offered to all of us who believe. Yet in order to be reconciled to this God, we must accept that free gift. But Paul's point here and elsewhere is that process doesn't begin with you. That process begins with God. It's what God did, not what you did. So what's Paul really trying to say here and to the Galatians throughout this letter? Well, it appears there was a group of Jewish Christians that arrived in the community and they were beginning to preach a gospel that really wasn't the gospel at all. They were saying things like, Jesus plus this other thing saves you. Jesus plus if you do these things. So there were a group of Gentiles there that were converting and coming to know Jesus. And they were telling them, you can be saved, but you have to become a Jew first. <laughs> You have to do all the things that the law is requiring of you, and then you can be welcomed into this family that we call Christian, and Jesus is going to save you. And Paul has a resounding no to that message. They were saying in order to accept Jesus, you first must obey the law. For some reason, for some reason, human beings have always been reluctant to accept the idea of grace. It just sounds too good to be true. But that's the message 
of the gospel. These Christians were no exception. They were trying to dig their way into God's house without fully realizing that the door had already been swung wide open. And all they had to do was walk through. And maybe that's something we struggle with as well. Paul writes this letter reminding them that their standing before God is not contingent upon their observance of the law. The good news of the gospel is that God came to save us in spite of our inability to measure up to the law. Now, Paul urges them to live lives of faithfulness. He encourages them to remember this very important point. And perhaps if you don't hear anything else this morning, church, hear this. Why is he encouraging them to live lives of faithfulness if it's already taken care of? Why is he encouraging them to live these pure lives and to follow after God and to do good things if it's already been taken care of? He's telling these Christians that they are working not in order to be saved. They're working because they are saved. It's out of gratitude It's out of thankfulness that Paul is calling them to live their lives this way. And as one having been justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, I can tell you this morning that my life's ambition is to live a life that pleases my Father. That's why we are here. And I don't do that. Because I'm afraid that if I don't, he won't love me. And it's not because I question whether or not he will save me. He's already proven his love and he's already guaranteed my salvation. It's different. I work with all of my might. Because I stand before you this morning, a dead man brought back to life. I live this way. Because when I ascended from those waters, I became a new man. And now as I stand before you this morning, it's really no longer I who stand here, but Christ who lives through me. That's the message of the gospel. Some of you may have seen the movie that came out now many years ago, Air Force One, starring Harrison Ford. It's a thrilling movie. As the story goes, if you haven't seen it, Harrison Ford in this movie is the president of the United States, and he is aboard Air Force One. When you know it, they're aboard Air Force One, and there are also terrorists aboard Air Force One, and a huge conflict ensues, and there's a big struggle. We quickly find out that the president, Harrison Ford, has a military background, and he's the hero of the story. And so somewhere through the course of the movie, he subdues all of the terrorists except for one. But just when you think everything's resolved, it's not. Because they begin to talk with one another and they realize here they are on this huge plane and nobody knows how to land the plane. And so the scene shifts to Washington, D.C. Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Vice President are all in the war room and they're trying to develop a strategy to bring the President home safely. And here's what they come up with. They decide to bring a military transport plane and to fly it alongside Air Force One. And then they're going to attach a zip line from one plane to the other. 
And they were going to get at just the right height where everybody aboard Air Force One can zip line into this military transport plane. I said it was a thrilling movie. I didn't say it was realistic. That's the plan. And it works, kind of. They get everybody out of the plane. Everybody zip lines to safety. And there's one person left. Of course, it's the hero of the story, Harrison Ford. And just as he's about to get onto the zip line, wouldn't he know it, the one terrorist that he has yet to subdue comes out of hiding. A fight happens. And shortly after the fight begins, Air Force One goes into the water. And there's this moment of dread back in Washington. As they cannot see anything, they just have the radio and the radar. And on the radar, Air Force One was there one moment and then it wasn't. And the radio went silent. And everybody believes the president has gone down with the plane. But then, after a long period of silence, over the radio comes this message. Liberty 2-4 is changing call signs. Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One. So the president had made it safely aboard the cargo plane just before Air Force One went into the ocean. And here's what I want you to hear from this story. Isn't it interesting that the identity of this simple transport plane was dramatically changed from Liberty 2-4, common to Air Force One, for one simple reason. The president came aboard. Before God came to live inside of you, you were plain and ordinary. And you were doomed to the same fate as every other part of creation since the beginning of time. A life filled with disappointment that eventually ends in death. A life filled with chaos with no proverbial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But by welcoming God into your body, you are a, a new person. You, church, have been given a new identity. You have been given a new purpose in life. And you've even been given a new name. So as resurrected people here this morning, let's give thanks with all of our hearts for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For through his faith, we have found life. And through his death, we found a model to follow. And through his resurrection, we have found assurance of our salvation. My prayer for us this morning, church, is that we would quit trying to dig a tunnel into God's kingdom. And then we would turn and we would look and we would see that the door's been flung wide open, ready for us to walk in. That is the good news. And in fact, that's great news. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Jesus for what he means in our lives, for 
who he calls us to be, we're thankful for his faithfulness in all of its implications. God, we pray this morning that as we leave this place that we would bring that joy and that worship outside of these walls, living lives of gratitude, offering up worship to those around us who are close enough to see and to hear. Thank you for changing our name. Thank you for salvation. It's in the name of Jesus the Christ we pray. Amen.